Do you feel fulfilled? Right now, 6,000 Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama are awaiting the preliminary results of a unionization vote, which could be released at any moment. And this is so significant, not only for the later labor movement in the United States, but also for the future of work around the world, and including here in Canada. In Canada, Amazon operates 13 fulfillment centers. Uh, most of the operations are here in Ontario, some in British Columbia. Amazon says it's going to build more. Peel region is the epicenter of the COVID-19 infections in this province, and Amazon has four facilities in Peel region. To talk more about the importance of what's happening in Alabama, what it means here in Ontario, and what is going on with Amazon, I am pleased to welcome to the program Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica, and he has written a new book called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Welcome to the program, Alec. Thanks, Alan. First of all, congratulations on on your book. Before we get to the book itself, can you just give me a sense and our listeners a sense why there is such focus on that vote in Alabama? Well, the stakes are just enormous. I mean, if you, you step back and think about it, uh, what this what this means from a historical perspective, um, we've seen, of course, a huge decline in, in union jobs uh, in the States and, and in Canada with the decline in manufacturing. The uh, These warehouses have really become kind of like the new form of mass kind of entry-level work um, in North America. If you don't have, you know, if, if you have relatively low skills and you need a job at a given time, you go work at the warehouse. Um, kind of the way you used to go work at the at the factory or the plant, and um, and so the real question is: Are we going to lift up those jobs to something approaching a semi middle middle class sustainable family supporting existence, um, or are they just going to remain this this kind of this very kind of low low wage form of labor that people just kind of come into here and there with with huge turnover uh, and, and and are really not sustainable. Um, are we going to make them more like the, those manufacturing jobs of yore that they've replaced by by making them unionized? If the unionization vote goes through, uh, what would the ramifications of that be in your estimation? Well, it would just be it would, it would give a massive boost to other organizing efforts at, at other warehouses, Amazon warehouses. Uh, across North America, it would um, it, Amazon. There's there's a you know whole lot of speculation about how Amazon would respond. There's even some speculation that they might um, respond Just by leave. shutting down this warehouse. Yeah, and uh, which would be an incredible step to take. I, it, it seems unlikely they would do that because it would stir such a massive backlash. Not least given the the racial demographics of that of that warehouse, and which is heavily black. So uh, shutting it down would be a very extreme step, but. But it would it would definitely light a fire under under efforts um, at, at other warehouses. The fact that this would be happening in a very conservative state uh, with the so-called right to work laws would would just be really extraordinary. It's, and and I would have to say the odds are still stacked against it. Your book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, is uh, so very wide-ranging. You detail the experiences of workers actually working in the fulfillment centers, and you look at the political machinations and the lobbying efforts of Amazon. And it's not all black and white. You, you sort of detail both winners and losers. I, I wonder if you could give an example of both. 
Sure. The book actually started out um, as a book about regional inequality, these growing disparities that we see around North America between sort of winner-take-all cities and left-behind towns. And and I only sort of secondarily came to Amazon as a frame to tell that story. Um, the the winner-take-all cities that I focus on in the book are primarily Seattle and Washington, D.C., um, which are the two sort of headquarter cities for Amazon, um, where you just have this extraordinary hyper-prosperity and crazy housing costs and displacement of of long-time residents, built um, change of character in those cities. And then the, the left-behind places that I focus on in the book are Baltimore, where I live, just 40 miles from Washington, where you have this incredible gap between those two cities, just 40 miles apart, and then also various um, cities and towns in Ohio. So um, that's – and the, the sort of the, the – the, the basic argument is that this incredible disparity is not good for either source of place. It's, it's, uh, it's not just the left-behind places that are hurting from it. It also, the hyper-prosperity in the winner-take-all cities has also made them, you know, sort of unlivable for a lot of people. Amazon's growth has also been exponential during this last year, during the pandemic. I, can, can you give us a sense of what the impact of that, that growth will be? It's just extraordinary. I mean, it's hard to only seem to grasp how much it's grown um, as a result of so many of us really kind of embracing the, the one-click kind of existence in a much more uh, intense way than we than we had before. I mean, 40% increase in sales, um, 50% increase in warehouse space, um, you know, on top of what was already just a whole, you know, more than 100 fulfillment centers, they added 50% more space, um, 400,000 more workers, um, you know, you see this viscerally if you're, you know, driving on the you now on, on on the highway and the interstate in the U.S. Just you you lose count of how many how many Amazon trucks you're seeing on the highway or then the, the smaller vans in your neighborhood. Um, it's it. I I don't think we fully grasped just how much bigger they got this past year because to some extent we probably all feel somewhat complicit in it. Um, you know, given how much that that growth was driven by our own decision to kind of go all in on. On, on on buying order order ordering things from home and then relying on a whole class of sort of packers and pickers and delivery workers to to support our daily existence. I'm speaking with Alec McGillis, whose new book is Fulfillment: Winning and Losing in One Click America. Just recently, and you just mentioned sort of the the complicit nature of us consumers. I mean, against my my better judgment, just simply because I needed it, I needed it quickly. I what did I buy? I bought some cycling gloves. I just clicked away. And I needed them right away. And sure enough, they were there within 48 hours. I'm wondering if you could detail for me, just give me a better sense of, I mean, what what is required in a supply chain to be able to deliver that to my door so quickly? There's um, there's just extraordinary pressure um, on the workers in the performance centers and then also on the drivers to to get it to you that fast. And, and the... Um, so you, and that's that's why you end up with these horror stories about people not being able to take bathroom breaks. That's been a big controversy recently. Again, that's come up as a big issue. Um, the I have a whole you know really poignant scene in the in my, in my book about a worker, older man who spent three decades working at a steel mill, uh, making very good living at the, at the steel mill, and then went back to work in the Amazon warehouse in the exact same spot, exact same piece of land outside Baltimore, and um, and one of his problems at the Amazon job was not just that he was making a lot less money working there than he had at the steel mill, but that he did not have time to, to go to the bathroom and sometimes had to actually pull up 
um, sort of sneak behind his forklift in the warehouse and hope that no one would see him. Um, just, you know, incredibly sort of uh, sort of sad and undignified thing to be forced to do. And and then you have these drivers who are, you know, who are having to, you know, basically go in bottles in their, in their trucks because they don't have time because there's under such pressure to make their deliveries. I mean, this is, you have just... Um, this, workers under so under under the gun um, to make those to make to make the kind of quotas that you need to get your you or that package in a day or two, and then on top of that, of course, you have the effect on small businesses that that a lot of the, the book also gets into just the effect on the supply chain of 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 merchants or small businesses who are who feel like they have no choice but to sell on Amazon. Um, because it's sort of where everyone now goes to buy their stuff. And so they sell their stuff on Amazon. Um, and a lot of the things that we buy on Amazon are actually from these third-party sellers, not from Amazon directly. And and they, um, for them, the big cost is, is, of course, the cut that they lose to Amazon, typically in between 15 and 30% of their of their um of their revenue goes to Amazon in forms of various fees and commissions. And so that that's what the book is trying to show you is this whole ecosystem of of what is what lies behind that 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 one click that seems so cheap and easy. And some might say that, you know, consumers are are voting with their wallets. They're they're voting with their clicks, but you you point out that being successful as a third-party seller on Amazon might get you into trouble. Amazon may just use the data and come in and decide, no, we're going to take that over. Exactly. That's that's a whole new thing that they've that's got a lot of scrutiny. That this is not just so much of Amazon's power comes from from the data that that they um, they just they can they know um, they know what's selling um, and they know you know down of course the tiniest detail they know. Who's buying what, and who's selling what, and what's doing well, and in, in, in a whole bunch of instances, they've seen that some kind of product is somebody doing very well, that's being sold by a third-party seller on the site, and then they will actually have made it, kind of reproduce that product onto their own one of their own company brands, and essentially just completely knocked out that seller, um, just driven their sales down to, to, to virtually nothing in, in an instant, and that's that's one of the things that has come up in the hearings that they that that they're starting to be held. Um, in Congress in Washington, um, a lot of scrutiny around that particular tactic. Uh, Alec, we're almost out of time. Uh, let's just focus on this: the consumer, the individual. Is there anything? Is there anything we can do, or or are we just powerless as individuals? I think you know. I don't. I'm not. I haven't been advocate, advocating a boycott or anything like that. I use Amazon when I have to. But I think in general, just coming out of this pandemic moment, it's been really important for for all of us as citizens and consumers to just to basically kind of re-engage with the physical world around us, re-engage with our own communities, our businesses, our, you know, our, our local culture, um, you know, sort of get ourselves back out of the house and into the world around us. Because if we don't, then we run a real risk of, of it just, just withering and, and losing it for good. Alec, great talking to you. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. That is Alec McGillis who is an author, his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America.